board candidates uh, and with me is uh, members of our editorial board, the editor-in-chief, uh, Beth Perdue, and Yvonne Drayton. Um, uh, and we have four of the eight candidates uh, with us today. Uh, um, Melissa Costa and Brad Markey from Ward 1, Maria Jesta from Ward 2, Dana Rivero from Ward 4. Uh, candidates are Jojo Forts and Paul Chase, uh, Jojo in Ward 4 and Paul Chase in Ward 5 said they would not be able to make it today and we did not hear back from Edward Cartagena in Ward 2 and Scott Luna in Ward 5 uh, from our invitations. So with no further ado, we'll, we'll start. We have some questions that are meant for uh, certain wards, uh, which we'll ask, and then questions that are meant for all wards, which we'll, we'll also ask. Now, we'll start, however, with uh, an opening statement uh, of three minutes each from all the candidates, and uh, we'll go from left to right, starting with Melissa, as to why the opening statement being why you're running here. What you like to talk about today? Thank you, Jack. Um, so my name is Melissa Costa and I am running to be the Ward 1 City Councilor. I was born and raised in the Whaling City. I am the product of New Bedford Public Schools, went to Kearney Academy, Parker School, Keith Junior High, and New Bedford High School Class of 1994. I graduated from UMass Dartmouth with cum laude with my degree in Sociology Social Services. I later returned uh, to Boston University to get my Master's in Social Work. I'm currently working for the Department of Mental Health as a Children and Adolescents Case Manager as well as faculty for the Bridgewater State University, for the um, field instructor for the School of Social Work. I am deeply invested and involved in the community. I serve on the board of directors for YWCA Southeastern Massachusetts, whose mission is to eliminate racism and empowering women um, by promoting peace, justice, dignity, and freedom for all. Through the YWCA, I facilitate racial justice and cultural competency trainings. I also co-facilitate youth police dialogues, where we bring youth and police officers together to discuss police, policing youth um, interactions, community safety, and how to make the community a better place. I also serve on the governance committee of the Greater New Bedford Suicide Prevention Coalition, whose mission is to build a network to save lives because every life is precious. Through the coalition, I facilitate suicide prevention trainings, especially in schools, as well as assisting in organizing city, event, city events to raise awareness. Like we had a citywide walk, a walk around Buttonwood Park. We just had a documentary on the S word. We've also held events for survivors of suicide and those who have lost someone to suicide. I am also a part of the Community Crisis Intervention Team, which is a collaborative effort that brings law enforcement and community agencies together with the common goals of safety, understanding, care, and services for people experiencing a crisis in their lives. I am the proud mother of two wonderful children. My daughter is a senior at uh, New Bedford Vogue in Legal and Protective Services, and my son is a junior at New Bedford Vogue studying culinary arts. They are my reason to deciding to run. I want them to live in a safe community, drive on safe roads, be able to afford to continue to live in New Bedford and be productive members of society. Thank you. Melissa Cox asked me for your vote for Ward 1. Okay, and next we'll go to Brad Markey, who's also, a, uh, William Brad Markey, who's also a candidate for Ward 1. Hi, thank you. Um, as Jack said, I'm a Brad Markey running for uh, Ward 1 Council. I live on Saskatoon Pond with my wife Jackie and my daughters Madison and Taylor. Uh, both Madison and Taylor went to New Bedford Public Schools. 
Uh, both graduated with high honors. Uh, both got into college at their choice, which was probably a little more expensive their choice than what I would have chose, but they got into it nonetheless. Um, my daughter, uh, Madison, is actually in a physical therapy program, seven-year program, working on a doc, working towards her doctorates. And my daughter, Taylor, just started a freshman year uh, studying finance. I was a graduate of SMU today, UMass Dartmouth, with a degree in textile technology. My wife, also a graduate of SMU. Uh, early on, I did own a small restaurant in the city, so I do understand some of the concerns of a business owner in the city. I'm on the board of directors of New Bedford Youth Soccer. Uh, that's a, uh, an organization, an instructional organization, to help the youth in New Bedford learn the game of soccer. Also a lector and CCD teacher at Our Lady of Fatima Church. Uh, people ask why you're running the city council. I mean, part of it probably goes back when I was a teenager, uh, going out with my dad. He was involved a lot, actually, for his cousin Jack Mucky running for mayor. And I'd get out there and campaign, and I just loved the energy and the excitement and the getting to know different people. So that kind of stuck with me as, as I was uh, growing up. Um, as my younger daughter went off to college, now there's a little bit more time, and I thought this might be a good opportunity for me to do this. Um, I raised my daughters here. They had a great existence here, did great in schools. I had a great experience here, my, my wife did as well, uh, in our neighborhood. And not to sound like an old cliche, but I want to give back. Um, I'm a sales rep. I'm out on the road every day. Um, every day I get out there to get it done. I'm in the trenches. I have to listen to my customers' needs and concerns and in order to help them through their issues and problems. And I can take that st same skill set and bring it to the, uh, the people of Ward 1. Um, as a counselor, you know, part of it is budgets and, and things with the city, as well as the bigger issues of, of crime, drugs, taxes, jobs, but also another big part of being a counselor is the people of that ward. Um, and that's what I want to do. I want to go out there and help the people of our ward. I would be their contact with City Hall, transparent and open of what's going on downtown. Uh, also quality of life, talking to people out there, that's it's a big concern. Uh, I want to make sure everybody feels safe. I want to make sure you enjoy your neighborhood, living in that neighborhood. And I'd be open to uh, your suggestions and thoughts and help you work through different different areas in order to get your issues resolved. Uh, I think the city's making great strides. I mean, you doing well over the years, and I'd like to be part of that, uh, that, whole, that whole thing going forward. So that's why I, I wanted to put my hat in the ring. Uh, again, I like people. I want to work with people. I enjoy people. And I ask for your vote on November 7th, Brad Markey, Ward 1 City Council. Thank you. All right, and next we'll go to Maria Giesta, who is a candidate for Ward 2 Council. Hi, good morning, and thank you for uh, inviting us here today to speak. My name is Maria Giesta, and I grew up and I live in Ward 2. Um, I am also a product of the New Bedford uh, School Department. I went to Ashley School, Normandon, New Bedford High, and then also I graduated from SMU which is now UMass Dartmouth in 1985. I graduated with a political science degree and history minor. Um, my family has always been very involved in the community here in New Bedford. Um, I grew up understanding that voting was very, very important, that you had to be not only part of your family, but part of your community. My family owned a restaurant on North Front Street, uh, Cafe Giesta. I'm sure some of you have heard of it. Um, I luckily was um, working for two um, 
great men, who I believe were great men, Senator John Kerry and also former Secretary of State. I worked for him for three and a half years. I started off doing data entry, um, in which it was a great experience to see what people were writing their senators about. I also worked for Congressman Barney Frank for 23 years. Uh, in 2012, Congressman Frank decided not to run for re-election, and that's when I decided to uh, retire, and um, unfortunately my dad got sick. I came back home to uh, help with that situation and um, decided finally to move back full-time. As some of you may know, I ran for mayor two years ago, and unfortunately I did not win. Ward 2 means a lot to me. It's where I grew up. It's where I live. And unfortunately, Ward 2 has seen some um, changes. And a lot of it has to do with the unfortunate reality of violence and the opioid crisis. And those are the two issues that I get asked about the most. Um, but I also want people to know that Ward 2 is a ward that has many families and working people. Like my family, uh, we don't want to continue to see what's going on in the ward, and that's why I will be working with the mayor, the city council members, um, the New Bedford Police Union, uh, and the people of Ward 2 to stem the violence that's going on in uh, Ward 2. Um, I also sit on the board of the New Bedford, Greater New Bedford Boys and Girls Club, and I am a member of the Day of Portugal Committee. I think it's very important, like I said, to give back to your community. I decided to run for Ward 2 because public service has been my whole life. And when I found out that Steve Martins was not running, um, I spoke to my family and some friends and some other people from the community contacted me and thought it was a great idea for me to run. And after thinking about it, I decided that yes, um, I want to do my best not only to help the people of Ward 2, but also the city overall. We need to work together as city councilors. Um, it's not, what's going on in Ward 2 can easily flow into the other wards and we've seen a little bit of that. So just a few, about a week ago on Central Avenue, there was unfortunately two murders. And that's three streets away from where I grew up and where I live. And we need to stop that. We need to work together to stop the violence that's going on here. So I pledge that I will always be available and accessible to the constituents of Ward 2. My phone number and my email address will always be listed. And I hope that you give me the uh, honor of uh, representing you on the council. And please remember to vote for me, Maria Giesta, Ward 2 Counselor, on November 7th. Thank you very much. All right, now we'll go to Ward 4, uh, incumbent Counselor Dana Ribeiro and candidate for re-election. Good morning, New Bedford. I understand this is live, and thank you everyone uh, for having this event. It's always fun to get people directly. So a uh, little bit about me. I'm a third generation Cape Verdean American. Growing up, uh, I my family didn't run for office. We were more activist driven. My father founded the Black Panther Party here. Um, 
my uncle, my cousin Gerald, uh, started treatment on demand. So my family was always involved, uh, but it was on more of an activist uh, level, serving the needs that that uh, the established government uh, plugging those holes that, that they didn't fill. Uh, growing up, I volunteered. Uh, my dad had, I, on the weekends I had to volunteer. I wasn't allowed to like hang out or go to the mall. So I volunteered with Amnesty International. And then the fight was to end apartheid and free Nelson Mandela. And it was then, uh, I worked with a lot of kids that were in college and I was in high school. So it was such a learning experience because I saw grassroots organizing and I saw um, just the idea that things don't happen right away, but you keep plugging in. And it wasn't until I, I think I was like my last year of college when apartheid ended and Nelson Mandela was free and became president. And this was growing up hearing, he'll never get out of jail, apartheid will never end. And it, it solidified in me that you, you never give up, you never stop fighting. You always have a, a big table, you invite everybody that can help and wants to help down, everyone can do something. Like in high school, I was like licking stamps and stuffing envelopes, but I was doing my part. And you just go the course, and eventually you get you get not necessarily what you want, but um, but you move forward. So uh, I went to Howard University, and um, then uh, traveled and, and you know experienced life. I worked uh, in film, I worked uh, magazines, and uh, worked for uh, for a company that held concerts, and I was a media liaison. And then uh, when I was in New York, I came back to visit New Bedford for the Third Eye Hip Hop Festival and uh, was given a documentary by a local filmmaker and saw that we had a problem with shootings here. And I said, I have to come back to New Bedford and I have to do something about this. So uh, my skill set then was really uh, filmmaking. So I made a documentary and it uh, took one boy from the West End, one boy from the South End. We went on a road trip uh, down to Baltimore to see a concert and uh, introduce them to activists and artists. And um, the goal was they didn't know each other. So to get them to know each other, and then when they come back, see the influence it had on them. Uh, because, you know, they were young at that age, but in a few years, they could be, they could be fighting one another. Uh, so a year later, well, the documentary was made, it was shown at the Z, we had all local music. It was a really exciting time. Um, one of the young men was one of the first people murdered. And I realized that um, I wanted a more solid foot in the game. Um, so I decided to, uh, to run for office. And I did not win, but I ran again and again until I did win and put that same skill set of, you know, you make a you, you fail, okay, you look to see what, what, what went wrong, where you fell short, and then the next time you do a little better. So um, I've been a counselor now for two terms. I believe in term limits, so I'd like to serve a third and last term. And um, so what, what I've done so far and what, what I'll carry on into the next term. So we were able to get refrigeration for the longshoremen, um, which was a task, which was a task. And uh, moving forward, we'd like to see their uh, union hall rebuilt, which will also act as a community center, which is much needed in the South End. Um, they'll have more members now, because now they're working year round, whereas before, when the weather got good, they had no refrigeration, they couldn't work. So I reached out to the, the treasurer's office to provide financial literacy classes for the new members, so they learn like how to pay their taxes, how to how to save for retirement, how to put down money every, every paycheck so that they can buy become homeowners. Um, also, um, putting together a fishing institute. So, reached out to Senator Markey, um, Senator Warren, 
Congressman Keating, uh, Mr. Bullard, who was mayor of New Bedford, uh, have them on board. And the idea is that in the fishing industry, you have, it used to be like your dad was a fisherman, your grandfather was a fisherman, your son was a fisherman, but they make good money, obviously, sent their kids to college. So now that, that new generation is, is, is gone. And the average age of a captain used to be 35, now it's 65. 65 out there on a boat. So there's definitely, there, there are jobs to be filled. And the idea is to uh, have training where people learn proper fishing, uh, how to repair a net, welding, because when you're out there on the boat and something breaks, you just can't come back. You have to be out there until you catch, catch you know, what you're out there for. And um, uh, Mr. Bullard said he would give us an experimental license so that at the end of their training, they can actually go out, fish, come back, sell their fish in the auction and get money. Um, and then, of course, there are jobs. I reached out to Dr. Rothschild from SMAST. He's no longer the head of SMAST, but he's still involved. And he talked about adding a research component. So those young people that necessarily aren't into fishing can take the fish that are kept and store them and do, do whatever the science is that they do until they can get them back here for SMAST. So, um, and there are other jobs. I mean, we'll expose them to the auction houses. There's everything from, like, if, if you hate everything but you like to drive, there'll be need for truck drivers. But it's all about, you know, we talk about drug addiction in the city. We talk about violence. And to me, it all stems to poverty. And what are we going to do um, to help the people that are poor become middle class? Because in the 80s, we had a vibrant middle class. And uh, under Ronald Reagan and Reaganomics, people got pushed down. And there's never been an effort to move people back up. So these small little steps, these, these little lines that we can connect help build um, people uh, and, and give them good jobs. Oh, and also there's a component of financial literacy within the Fishing Institute as well. I mean, you consider a captain makes $300,000 a year and a fisherman can make 70000 So when you get young people in these jobs, you have to make sure they understand how to manage their money. Um, also, uh, so, but then, so those are a long-term goals, but I think that's doable within the next six to nine months, especially with, with the support that I have. So uh, the small things locally, uh, advocating to the governors. I mean, when I came on, it was uh, Deval Patrick, and now it's, it's Governor Baker. As soon as he uh, got elected, I reached out, and he before he even was sworn in, he took a tour of Ward 4, started at Kearney Academy, and um, continued to reach out to him. And for the first time last year, New Bedford was included in his monies for uh, for at-risk summer programming for kids. Brockton got it, Boston got it before. We were never in that, now now we are. Um, also, um, also uh, what were the other, sorry, I have notes here. Um, grandparents raising grandchildren. So they're starting a scholarship fund, and these are our local grandmothers that are raising their kids, and they wanna make sure that they can go to college. So when Brenda Grace called me, I said, you know what, we need to start now. We need to get these kids at UMass now so that they have a goal of, of what they want to accomplish when they're in second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. So every year, uh, starting last year, uh, we go to a basketball game. And some of these kids had never been to UMass. I mean, some of the little girls, they didn't know that girls play basketball too. And they sit there and they get all excited and uh, the, the players, they meet the players afterwards on both teams, and the players talk to them about the importance of listening to adults, being, you know, being a good student, and doing the right thing. 
And uh, we want to continue that because we want to make sure that there's there's that connection um, so that as they're in school, they're, they're, the goals are tangible. Um, also, I, I put together some foreclosure clinics because we have a crisis in our city. 25 people signed up, 24 were helped. I found that uh, most of these people were 55 and older. So moving forward, I reached out to the AG Attorney General's office um, so that right now the way foreclosures work with them is when the houses are, are abandoned, they fix them up and then they sell them to uh, first-time owners, which is a great thing. But some of these houses, the people should not abandon them because they have the right to be in them. And especially when you're looking in New Bedford where you have people who their whole lives have, have lived in that home for generations and have put everything into that home. We have to make sure that the people that deserve to, to stay in their homes remain in their homes. Um, also, um, Oh, sorry. Okay, yeah, so that's, I'd like to do more of that. So it's, the big picture is having a long-term goal, but also making sure that there are small efforts being made that are tangible, uh, that, that help connect people. Great, thank you. All right, so we have a series of questions that uh, we originally were going to tail them when we thought we would have uh, more candidates, so we'll, we'll ask everybody all the questions because they do apply to uh, all the words. Uh, Start with, um, I'll try to vary up the um, start period. So this one will start with Brad, since we started with Melissa last time. Uh, increased spending on New Bedford schools, particularly the turnaround plans, has led to pressure on property taxes. Do you support meeting the state's net school spending amount every year? How would you better control the growth in property taxes, including getting control of state mandates on employee health care and pensions? Big question. Good question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I mean it, it is important. Obviously, education is huge for the city of New Bedford, um, and we need to do what we can to increase it. But obviously, it's going to cost more and more money, um, which is tough. I mean, the state does mandate uh, different things. Um, I, I think we just need to look at things um, in the system itself, the budgets, and, and where the monies are going. Uh, we need as much as we can for the children. And maybe we could reevaluate. I mean, I'm, I'm in the business world, so a lot of times people say that uh, the money's made in purchasing. Well, you're not purchasing per se at the, for the school, but maybe looking at some of the overhead. Where can we cut? Where can we save? Obviously, you don't want to do that with the teachers and the educators because that's who's teaching our children. So I think we need to look look at that there. Um, unfortunately, with taxes, everything goes up every year. Teachers get raises um, for the insurance. Um, Insurance goes up every year. I don't know what you do to stop that. I don't think you can. But we got to look at things, where we can save, what we can do to save. Um, I don't think we should put the burden so much on, on the people who are, you know, in these programs, say for the health insurance. But it's something we should look at and um, see what we can do that also benefits the city, but also, you know, helps out or doesn't put too much of the burden on the people who take those services. Um, Melissa, same question. Increased spending on the Bedford schools, particularly the turnaround plans, has led to pressure on property taxes. Do you support meeting the state's net school spending amount every year? How would you better control the growth of property taxes, including getting control of state mandates on employee health care and pensions? Um, so with turnaround plans, there's also a lot of money that's given to the school department from the state. Um, so that doesn't necessarily fall on the taxpayers per se. Um, but it, there is, I think that there needs to be a line-by-line -line item. If I have spoken to numerous people and find out that there are 
items that are hidden within the system. And so I think we need to do better work at teasing through those numbers, teasing through those actual positions, who is filling those positions. We definitely need to be investing in our frontline workers, the people who are out there with the children, the paraprofessionals, the assistants, the teachers, the school adjustment counselors, the ones who are doing daily work with the kids. Um, you know, before, and we need to be looking, making sure that the kids' basic needs are met. Um, but as far as like the taxes go, I think we need to be looking at how we balance that. As far as the insurance goes, um, we need to explore all possibilities, but make sure that we're not doing it at the cost of the educators as well. Um, and it's just making sure that we're aware of the taxes and how they're being used um, in the schools. Uh, neither of you mentioned net school spending in your answer. Can we get an answer? Would you, do you support net school spending, meeting that amount every year? Um, as far as I'm, I'm not totally clear on the net school spending and how that dictates the um, costs and the expenditures, so that I would need to go back and do some further research before I give an answer on that. Right. Yeah, I'm kind of the same thing, a little vague on it, but if I understand it right with the net school spending, I would probably say yes, but again, I would also think that we have to look at this because sometimes what they put forward may not kind of jive with everything, so. All right, Maria, same question, I'll read it again because it's a, a long one. Increased spending on your back in schools, particularly turnaround plans, has led to pressure on property taxes. Do you support meeting the state's net school spending amount every year? How would you support better control of growth in property taxes, including getting control of state mandates on employee health care and pensions? Uh, you know, education is very key to anyone's life, uh, especially our children. And um, like Melissa and uh, Brett pointed out, the net school spending, that is something I will take a look at. Um, taxes have always been an issue in the city. Um, we can't continue to tax people um, because they are, unfortunately, businesses and residents are continuing to leave uh, the city. So we need to find better ways to bring revenue back into New Bedford, and a lot of that has to do with jobs. Um, I don't think New Bedford is marketed uh, the way that it should be, um, the way, you know, we have a great city here, um, but unfortunately people look at the issue of the crime and that's what's played over and over again in the news. And they, we don't talk enough about the positive part of New Bedford. We have some beautiful beaches, we have a beautiful waterfront, we have an airport, um, you know, we have highways around here. Uh, so we need to do a better job in marketing New Bedford and bringing companies like Microsoft and Apple and industries like that into New Bedford. We have an educated public here. You know, we, we have a university. We have BCC in Fall River, and we also have a satellite uh, school here in downtown New Bedford. So in order for us to be able to stem the constant rise of taxes, we need to bring revenue back into the city. We can't keep taxing people. People are moving into Dartmouth and Cushion, Fairhaven because property taxes are lower there. I don't want to leave the city and I'll never leave New Bedford and I want to make sure that other people do the same. And regarding education again, 
We need to stop going after our teachers. We need to come together as a community and work with our teachers. I spoke about this time and time again. Um, the battle between the superintendent, the school committee, and the teachers need to end. Um, our, as parents, as aunts and uncles, um, and as community leaders, we need to come together and make sure that testing is not the only way we measure what's going on with our children. Um, we need to come back. Last night I was at the school committee debate and one of the candidates, which I thought was amazing and very truthful, when we were growing up, our teachers knew us, knew our, our brothers and sisters, knew our parents, knew our grandparents. We had communication amongst each other, and that's being lost because teachers are forced to teach a test rather than teaching the subject. So these are very important issues, and it's something that I will be working on very closely with my colleagues on the city council and also the school committee and the mayor. Uh, same question. Um... I remember it. So, um, so it, it's kind of like this circle. It's like we need money for our schools because we have to invest in our kids because that's the future. And there's a limited, there's a limited uh, place where we get the money's from. It's from taxes. So it, it's this circle, and we keep doing the same thing, and it's frustrating, and it's it's a burden. Uh, which is why I support the fair share tax, which is going to be on the ballot for 2018. So the fair share tax would, um, if you have, for millionaires, people that have over a million, they would have to pay 4% more tax. That would add almost $2 billion. And that money would go very specifically to public education, to transportation, and to uh, infrastructure. That's all that, that money goes. So you're talking about a, a third of $2 billion added across the state to education. And we need, we, I mean, it's going to be on the ballot. I, I ask people to support it because we need this. We need to start thinking about uh, different ways to bring money in. And if you're worth $4 million, 4% added to your, to your taxes is not a huge deal at all. If you're worth 30 million, 50 million, 1. You know, 8 million, it's not a big deal. And, um, these monies are needed. I mean, when you, I, I walk through our schools all the time, and uh, there's school, education is is the big. It it gives people equality, and um, kids go to school and they're not all on the same foot. You know, some kids come from a home where they have two parents, and both parents, you know, do pretty well, so they have laptops and they have they the parents can afford tutors, and then you have most of uh, you have a lot of single moms who are working working and working, but they can't give their kids everything. So kids go to school on unequal footing. So, I mean, that's why I think we put more money in the schools because we, we realize that not every kid goes to school with the same materials and, and from the same homes, but they all deserve the same opportunities. Um, and, and we need to provide that. And, uh, and I, I think the fair share tax, I, I know that that $2 billion Added, added to um, to the state would make a huge impact, and especially with our schools. So when you talk about taxes for people's homes, if we, if that's where we keep the conversation, that's where we're going to stay. So we need to broaden it, and I, I that's why I support the fair share tax. 
2018 ballot. All right, next question. Uh, we'll start with Marie at this time. Uh, do you think the perception of crime in New Bedford matches the reality? Why or why not? Crime has been a big issue uh, this year. Well, as someone who lives in War II, crime is a reality. As I said before just a week ago, we had uh, two men, young men, who were uh, shot and killed on Central Avenue. So that's a reality, and that unfortunately is an ongoing uh, issue with, um, you know, I always say to people, ask people on Tallman Street and Nye Street and North Front and Bullard um, if it's just a perception, if, if violence is just a perception or is it a, a reality. We, one of the things that I have talked about is hiring more police officers. We, we need uh, more police officers in our department. We're down, I believe, anywhere between 27 to 30 police officers. Um, the community policing program only has three police officers in it. We need more than that. We need at least eight to ten police officers and uh, a supervisor. And that is something that uh, we need to reestablish that program. And um, I've talked to and I have been endorsed by the police uh, union, the New Bedford Police Union, because they know that I will work with them uh, and for them. And um, yeah. Crime in War II is reality, and we need to put get a fix on that before um, we can move on to um, many other issues that affect the city. Um, and that is something again that um, it, it's it's a unfortunate blight on our city. And again, like I said, we we have more in our city than just crime. And until we get the um, that problem resolved in War Two and in some other wards, then we're not going to see the um, what New Bedford can be. Are you skeptical of the FBI statistics that say uh, most crimes are down? You know, everybody plays with numbers. Everybody uses their different statistics of determining if crime is up, crime is down, and that's why I say. Yeah, those are numbers that we should uh, look at, but then let's look at the neighborhoods and the people that live there and talk to them. Many people are afraid to come out of their homes. We have, we still have families that live uh, in those areas and in those homes, and their children need to catch the bus to go to school, and the first thing they encounter are drug dealers, uh, the prostitution that goes on, and the crime. Um, I, just again, over a month ago, right in front of the Whiskey Lounge, in front of Rachel's, across the street from Lydia's Bakery, somebody was killed. You know, that's a working class neighborhood with families and, and, and businesses. Um, that needs to stop. Uh, Dan, same question. Uh, do you think the perception of crime in New Bedford matches the reality? Why, why not? And also, if you could speak to the FBI statistics. Sure. So I think for a long time, uh, crime was controlled in that it was kept in pockets. And now in pockets of neighborhoods. And now you're seeing spillage. So now people, it's now that it's reaching other neighborhoods, now people are, are con 
Now it's like, oh my gosh, we have a crime problem. We, we always had it. It was just contained in certain areas. So uh, for me, when you talk about crime, we're talking about poverty and uh, people's uh, inability to get good jobs. No child wakes, is born, you know, they all have the same hopes and dreams. And no one's like, oh, I'm going to be a drug dealer and a killer. So what happens between the young age until they start doing that? And that, that's poverty, and that's what we need to address. Um, which uh, I hope to do with some of some of my ventures, the Fishing Institute, helping the longshoremen, jobs that young people can get um, that maybe school hasn't been a road for them, or they can have until they go back into school. Um, also, uh, guns. Like I was talking to somebody the other day, older, and they were like, "Yeah, I was involved with the Western Southland thing." The thing was, I didn't have an access to guns. If I did, I would have used them. So uh, last night at the, uh, the governor's uh, um, had a commission here of his aides to talk about what we can do in the black community. And I know that the governor has monies set aside for uh, deterring uh, gun violence. And one of the things he does is he puts big billboards up saying, don't buy illegal guns in places like Mattapan. That is useless. So what I, what I asked and what I would like to see with that money, because most of the guns that kids get here obviously are not made in New Bedford. Um, they come from, uh, well, right now I, I think it's down south where they're coming from before it was made, is we use that money to start a tip line because it's a considerable amount of money. And not a, not a gun buyback. I've done the research. Those don't work. A tip line. So if you know guns that are coming in from New Bedford from outside and you report them and we're able to catch that person, you get a certain amount of money. Once that person is convicted, you get more money. And it's anonymous. And, uh, you know, the kid buying the gun is not going to say anything, but his girlfriend might, his mother might, his cousin might. And, and it sends a message to people because what I find when we talk about violence is everyone has their picture of who it is committing the crime. We tend to villainize black and brown boys. And how are they getting these guns? From legal gun owners outside of New Bedford, outside of the state. And it's time we tell those people, we're not here to make you rich. And, we're, and the blood spilled here is on your hands as well. And I think this would send that message. Um, so um, that's my, my thought about that. And also it's I, I try to work uh, to make sure that there's opportunity for kids. I advocate constantly for monies. Like I said, we, we now have uh, the governor gave us the funding for the summer programming, which we had never had before. And also, I stand up when, when I don't like what's going on in city council. When a counselor said, I want drones, I stood up and said, in high crime neighborhoods, no. First of all, it violated the Drone Act of what, 2013. And the act, it needs to be like a certain feet in the air and there needs to be a cop watching the drone. Well, if you're going to have that at Temple Landing, just have that officer walk around. Um, when there was a motion uh, that uh, if people are smoking marijuana, like the open bottle, you, you can get arrested. No, because it's going to target black and brown people. The way it is right now, uh, you get a ticket and you you're, you they confiscate your weed. That's good enough. So it's it's I want to be smart on crime, not tough, because we've done the war on drugs, didn't work. I, I really I have a good relationship with the chief, and uh, community policing, to me, is the way to go. And I really think um, 
Like for example, with the problem property ordinance, when there when there was a problem on Campbell Street, three officers came with me, and we knocked on everyone's door and let them know, like you know, we we're aware there's a problem. So uh, this when you call in, this is what you this is the information you can give that'll be helpful. And it's that constant. It's it's getting them out there and letting people know that this is their this is the officer. This is his name. He's here to help you, and um, that to me is most effective. So, and I can go on and on, but I know I'm not supposed to, so I'm going to end there. Just in the interest of time, uh, <laughs> I've given you a chance. Um, uh, next question. We'll start with you, Dana. Um, should the city adopt major officers? to have the option of use. Oh, we didn't, we didn't do the crime. Oh, no, she, yeah. My bad. It's okay. I mean, it's not. Do you want me to read the crime question again? Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> do you think the perception of crime in the bed thing matches reality? Why or why not? And if you could talk to the FBI statistics that the man has released indicating crime is down in most categories. Okay. Um, so my understanding as far as the reporting goes, reporting the credentialing has changed the requirements as or where things are falling within the um, reporting. So that's changed, therefore the statistics have changed. Um, perception depends on your own personal reality. Um, and so I think we need to look at what are the facts. Um, and like I said, that can kind of be left up to interpretation depending on how things are being reported. Um, but you know, we do know that right now we are at the highest that we've been in quite some time as far as the murder rate goes, we're up to eight. I think our highest was in 2003, we were at 11, um, but the last two years we've been at three. One life taken is one life too many. Um, so that definitely needs to be addressed. Um, and looking at the police department, um, realizing that they're budgeted for 310 police officers, yet they're carrying about 255 to 260, so that's about a 50 police um, deficit, which is about 20%. So imagine how stressed that they all are having to be out there all the time on the force. So that that, that impacts public safety. Um, you know, definitely reinstituting community policing as a division. It needs to be its own division, not just a couple officers doing it on their own. Um, it's proven to reduce crime and raise the sense of security within the neighborhoods. It's about creating interactive partnerships with various community members. Um, you know, I am, like I said, I am a part of the CCIT where law enforcement and different agencies throughout the area come together and we discuss certain issues or people or situations that are going on to see how we can all come together to service that person. So doing things like that, doing the youth police dialogues, you know, we just started our second session now and I mean, these are great, you know, we have 14 to 17 year olds sitting at a table with police officers and they're discussing stereotypes and they're talking about you know role playing and they're doing snitching and they're doing all these conversations these heavy conversations and they're coming together and to see how that evolves definitely changes the youth perception of the police officers as well as the police officers perception of the youth that they're serving to protect um, so being able to be a part of that is truly important and then realizing and speaking to a number of police officers the deficits that they encounter while at work, you know, computers not necessarily working, not all of them have a taser on hand. Um, you know, the cameras within the buildings aren't necessarily working. Um, they're asking for more training because they're, asked, they're being asked to do so much more with so much less, like we all are in many of our fields and disciplines. So just being able to support that, and that will definitely help with our perceptions. Uh Brad, same question. Um, do you think the perception of crime in the Bedford matches reality? 
why why not? I mean, please speak to the FBI. Sure. With perception, I, I'm thinking perception from outside people looking at you. That's how I took the question. No, no, it's actually just uh, perception in general. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, actually, well, it is a reality. Crime is a reality. Um, the perception of it, um, it could be a little bit more because just talking to different people and actually on the outside, two things that I thought about was my daughters were um, going to summer camp. This goes back many years ago in Lakeville. And I don't know, they're 10 and 12 years old. And one of the first questions from these other little children were, are you in a gang? Um, so people are actually thinking that. We, we, we played soccer, we were a travel team down the Cape, and the parents were actually, as well as the other players, were concerned that New Bedford was coming in to uh, play them. They didn't know what they were going to encounter. And one of the, how I found out, one of the parents said to me, well, it just turned out a lot better than we thought. It was, we, did, we thought the worst. And again, people just think how bad New Bedford is. Now we do have our crime, obviously, as, as mentioned, we're up to eight murders this year. Um, what we do is, is also mentioned is more police, but again, as you bring in, I think you said 50 in deficit, you bring more police, now all of a sudden now you got to pay them and it's the tax issue. Um, um, we should bring in more, more police officers, but also too, I think maybe some pressures on the courts. I mean, you talk to a lot of court people in, in there, they, they call it a revolving door. I mean, there are a lot of people just coming in and going out where maybe those people who are going in the courts and going out, we could try to concentrate on them. With, with people, as mentioned, how to get a better life, what to do to move forward, and also the police to try to help out in, in the policing that area, or maybe concentrating. Again, like in business, the 80-20 growing. I mean, a police officer told me the same thing. It's like the 80-20 in business, 80% of your business, 20% of your customers. Same thing with crime. It's not everybody in New Bedford, and probably New Bedford's 99-1. So if we know these people, and they all they do know them, work with them, try to mentor them, try to do different things to try to get them to kind of go on, say, the, the right track, if, if you want to say. Um, I mean, as, as far as the numbers, the stats, um, I, I do think things are coming down a bit, but there's still a lot of crime, robberies, uh, all different things of that nature, and of course, this year, murders compared to past years. So I would hope, and again, they have changed how they, they uh, do that type of thing, but I would hope those numbers are we didn't say it on the down track, but I think we still keep pressure and try to keep it pushing it down as well. And as with the murders now, we're eight. We still have a couple more months to go. So hopefully, you know, we, we really push on that and we won't see any more this year. Thank you. Uh, so now it's time for the next question. Uh, we'll start with Dana. Should the city adopt Mayor Mitchell's proposal to have you options using the state health insurance commission rates as a way of controlling the cost of health care? for city employees why or why not um i i think you know the, our workers they're not paid as much as they should be and um the only one of the only perks is their health care and i i think it would be i believe that health care is, is a human right so i i think it would be a a mistake to in any way try and take away from that um i su i support them in getting uh, increases in wages and, and I support them in maintaining their health care. Again, people are like, well, taxes, like, you know, our taxes go into that, which is again why I support the fair share tax because that money that's taken, uh, that money that's added, so we will pay less in taxes for schools. We would have uh, less taxes going towards public transportation, something that we need very much in the city, uh, a better bus system and less money going, uh, taking away for, for roads could supplement that. So it's, 
I think looking at taking away from there, again, it's, it's very sort of tunnel vision. And we need to look at how we can get relief in other areas so that that's not a burden. Because I, I don't think it's a burden. I don't think giving people what they need to stay healthy is, is a burden. I think that's the right thing to do. Uh, Melissa, same question. Um, uh, should the city adopt May Mitchell's proposal to have the option of using the state's group insurance commission rates as a way of controlling the cost of health insurance? Why or why not? So I've been asked this question before, and I have not been able to find the actual hardcore numbers as to exactly how much it would cost versus how much it would save. And when I say cost, not only to the city but also to the employees who would be receiving, you know, who would have to go into the system. Um, so therefore, I do not feel comfortable giving a full um, answer on that until I can see the hardcore numbers and do an yeah. evaluation on that. Yeah. Uh, are you familiar with how the group insurance? Um, that's actually what I'm in uh, as a state employee. <laughs> so that's the program. So you are in that program? I'm in that program. It's oh. not cheap. <laughs> Brad, the same question. Should the city adopt Mayor John Mitchell's proposal to have the option of using the state group insurance rates as a way of controlling cost of health insurance for city employees, why, why not? Uh, that one there, I, I think it, it has to be looked at. Um, right now, say with me and my insurance, you wouldn't want somebody to go in there and change it. As you said, it's very expensive. Um, I'm out in the private sector, and, and it is expensive for us. But I think we should look at everything, and my whole concern would be putting a burden on the employees who get this, this benefit. Um, so I think we should look at it. I think we should see maybe we can, I don't know exactly until you get involved in it, but can you better negotiate a rate? Can you see different things? You have it with the state versus what we have here in New Bedford. Um, and, and see where the costs are. What can we do to try to lower the costs or at least keep them where they are? Because this is going to continue to go up and up. I mean, health insurance is, is, is that way. So my thought would be, I mean, you would have to look at it. I think you'd have to get all parties involved because right now, it's set up with, with the employees that they pay a certain amount and then if, if say you change that you could also find people say new new hires coming in and they'll look at the package and if the package isn't good they might go to another city or town and, and I've heard this from other people that we are losing people to different cities and towns I won't say it's just for health insurance but if also your health insurance is going to cost you more but you can work in a different town if where it doesn't cost you as much we might be losing out there or, or losing our folks so I think the whole thing is really to it have to be looked at and to see if we could say how that is uh, plan works. I just want to clarify for anybody, everybody, anybody can speak to this. They want the mayor is asking for the option. Right. He's not saying that he would force the, the employees. He wants to use it as a bargaining tool so that when he's negotiating with the unions, if they don't come to agreement, then he can say we're going to the the group insurance. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, commission system. Yeah. People talk about it as if it's just a, to go into it. Right, yeah, so I wasn't quite sure of that question. But um, I mean, I'll be honest with you, that's a tough one to, to figure out to give that option. Okay. Well, we have the same question. Should the uh, city drop Mayor John Mitchell's proposal to have the option of using the state group insurance commission rates as a way of controlling the cost of health insurance? Why or why not? Well, as we all know, the city council um, did not agree with the mayor, of, I believe it was 10 votes um, against the mayor's proposal. Uh, you know, the ultimate goal is also always to, you know, try to contain uh, costs and, you know, pass those savings on to the taxpayers um, uh, while increasing, you know, controlling the increases. You know, as Dana pointed out, um, 
a lot of the city employees don't make a lot of money and their health care benefits are um, something that they need. And again, health care is a right that we should all have as Americans. Um, yes, the, the cost is always an issue, but again, uh, I want to be able to sit down with my fellow city councilors and the mayor and uh, go through this. I, I, at this point, I do not uh, support um, the mayor's proposal, and um, but I'm always willing uh, to sit down. And we got to keep in mind that a lot of the city employees don't make a lot of money, and to constantly pass that on to them and the taxpayers um, is not fair, and we have to find a better way to do that. All right. So we'll start with Melissa for this one. Uh, how important is the city's residency requirement for filling upper management positions? So I, when I looked at this um, topic previously, I found it, and I believe it to be very important. When you live in a, in a neighborhood, when you live in a community, you are invested in that community. It's another thing to be like, oh, let's go fix New Bedford and then let's go back to our home in the hills. Like, that that just doesn't resonate well with me. Um, you know, when I, if that was the case, then why do I have to run for just Ward 1 if that wouldn't be a requirement? It's a residency requirement to, to live in the community that you're serving. Um, and therefore, in our upper management, that's the same thing. You have that buy-in. You have that investment into that position, into that field, into that department, because you're invested in it. You work in it. You're going to see the benefits of it in your home, in your own neighborhood. And therefore, I support um, having upper management be living in the community that they are serving. Would there be any uh, opt out, uh, you know, uh, if you couldn't find someone, opt out? Or we have plenty you? of well-educated and uh, people here in New Bedford, we just need to make sure that we're working appropriately to be searching for them and to make those positions aware, known um, to the people in the city. I believe we have a great pool of people in this community that can fill those positions. Same question, uh, how important is the city's residency requirement when filling up a management position? No, I feel it's very important. Um, you should, like you say, you, you have a buy into the city. You're living here. You're experiencing things here. You're paying the taxes here. Um, so I, I, I do agree with that. Um, and a lot of times when they do a search, people are coming in from different areas. Uh, they have to move somewhere anyway, so you might as well move to New Bedford. The only one I would think, and I agree with Melissa, that we, we have a great pool of people here to pull, to pull from. But just say there was an opening that really nobody had the tools to do or, or the education or, or whatever the, the, for that particular job, and but you found somebody in Fairhaven that was perfect for it. Now would you want them to move from Fairhaven to New Bedford for that? So that would be my only, maybe like this, the city, I mean, they could say, well, no, we'll continue to look, but if there was somebody that was perfect for the job, they would bring a lot to the table, but yet, why am I going to sell my house in Fairhaven to move to New Bedford? then I think it would be up to the city to decide whether they would do that. But overall, if that wasn't the case, I definitely think it should be, you know, you hire from within, or if you're going to hire from without, then they, they move into the city, especially if they're going to be doing a move anyway. Same, same question, Maria. Uh, how important is the city's residence requirement when filling up a management positions, and should there be uh, a waiver if they can't find somebody? Well, you know, it's always important to find the most qualified person, and we do as Melissa and Brad pointed out, 
Uh, we do have many educated people here in Bedford that are qualified. But, you know, the city residency requirement, um, you know, there are other jobs in the city employees that don't require or uh, don't require the city uh, residency. And um, I just, I, I believe in it and I, I agree and I, I understand where you guys are coming from. But if we don't have a qualified person here, um, then we should be able to go outside the community. Fairhaven, Cushion at Dartmouth, it's not that far away from uh, New Bedford. Um, I agree that the um, city residency requirement is something that we should look at um, and something that's important, but uh, I don't want to lose um, somebody who is qualified for the job if they live in Fairhaven or Dartmouth. Um, but we do have a lot of qualified people here. You know, our police officers and firefighters don't have a city requirement, uh, residency requirement. Um, so I think, you know, let's tread lightly on that right now. Um, but again, something for me to consider and look at. Right. And we have this issue, as you know, Dana, this uh, just this year with the EMS director. Right. Where they could not hire someone because he didn't live in the city. and eventually uh, change the nature of the position. So uh, you had to vote on this. Uh, how important is the city's residence requirement in filling up a management position? So yeah, this was something new to me when I when I came aboard and I uh, there were times when it, it was someone it was very specific field we needed a diesel uh, repairman and I just thought repairman were repairman but you need a certain licensing and training so uh, that I, I did vote for uh, the gentleman he was from Fairhaven. Um, but I mean, right now I'm sort of embroiled in that with the purchasing director. Well, let me, so one of the, the challenges is that certain departments, when they have a position filled, uh, they don't post it out. And there's been a few times when someone has, a, well, one time specifically, a young woman with a health department, they needed a residency waiver. And she started like, you know, lower management and, and worked her way up. Like every time there was a position, they put her up instead of opening it up to people from New Bedford. Um, and, and we voted no on that one. And, uh, and then we had a, I had a conversation with uh, the health director to say, you know, you have, it needs to be a, a, lay, a level playing field. So you need to make sure that you post these and that you interview everyone and that you're not just sort of bumping someone up. Uh, and also she didn't have experience. It was, it was with grant writing and she had only assisted the, the person that did it not. She had never done it on her own. Um, so, and now with the purchasing director, I mean, I've been asked for a waiver for a woman from Plymouth, which I am absolutely against. I refuse to believe that there's nobody in New Bedford that can do that job. The person that's acting right now as purchasing director is doing a fabulous job. So in my mind, I don't, there's no way you're going to convince me that she's bringing something to the table. Her experience for Cohasset, which is a city that has less than 8,000 people, there are there's more than that in just Ward 4, that you're going to be able to jump into a city of 100,000, a diversity, not much diversity in Cohasset. And uh, whenever it comes to department heads, there are certain things I look for. I look for people that speak more than one language. Um, very proud of, of Manny DeBrito. He's now our elections commission. He speaks four languages. Uh, and of course, Maria, who served before him, was multilingual as well. But I think in a city like this, uh, it's important. Uh, and it, it says something that, that, you know, that this is a city for everyone. 
I, I like um, I like diversity. I mean, we don't have as many women heading departments as, as we do. We're looking for a new uh, department head for DPI. I'm advocating for the woman that's uh, going for that position, not just because she's a woman, but because she's amazing and she's from New Bedford. Um, so with me, it's, it's not only that people are from here, but that we open up our search and that we just don't, when you, when you walk through, it's, you see the same faces and, and sometimes the same last names, and that's not serving the city. Uh, partially why I believe in term limits and I only want to serve three terms. We, we can't be afraid to let new people in and to, and to challenge ourselves and be challenged. And I think part of, of um, the, the weakness is that you want someone who's going to be on your team as mayor versus wanting someone that's going to challenge you when they think you're going in the wrong direction. And then you have to sit down and listen to them and say, you know what, you're the head of this department, so I'm going to defer to you and not my rules my way. So um, there are times when I voted for them, but for me, I, I like that we that we keep uh, we keep it in New Bedford. and. Um, and that we, it's not only people from New Bedford, but, but a healthy, diverse uh, group of people. Uh, continuing along, um, we had asked about, you support Mayor John Mitchell's proposal to develop part of the municipal golf course as an industrial park. <coughs> and has the process been public enough? What are, what are your ideas for large-scale economic development? We'll start with uh, Brad this time. Okay. Um, yeah, the golf course, um, I think it should be looked at um, and to see if it is a viable way. Can we actually get people in, uh, companies in? Can we actually make it work so it benefits the city? Um, was it made public or you know, visible like that? I'm not sure. I mean, I read about it in Standard Times, so I assume that's who basically you know put it out there. I'm sure there were things going on behind the scenes we didn't know about, but I know you got to get things started somehow. But again, it's, to me, it was as visible as what I read, read in the newspaper. So yes, I mean, we should look at it, but I, I think we should only do it if it's going to work. I mean, as far as the infrastructure, I mean, when you put, I think it was 200 acres, the, the roads and the infrastructure to get there, um, water pressure, uh, all those different things, city utilities, uh, is it set up to warrant or can it handle such a thing? Um, so, I mean, that would be one thing. I think I've heard that our own industrial park maybe has two or three open areas left there. So we do need places that we can build, attract uh, business to come in this way. Um, I mean, you know, some of the areas looking at would be, I mean, let's say our port. I mean, right now we've got a, a big port. It's a fishing port, but can we use it for more freight? Can we use it for different things coming in? You know, the rail, I mean, of course, that's nothing we control. I don't think too much. It's more of a state thing, you know, bringing it that way. So I think what we need to do is look out there, who can we bring in, I mean, look at things. I mean, you look downtown, uh, we got one hotel, and I think a new one in the works, there's a lot going on downtown. A lot of it's small business. Um, you know, I love going downtown now because of the growth and everything, and most business jobs created out through small business. So maybe make sure we continue to be small business friendly. Um, but also, too, part of the problem is, and especially with our taxes, is most of your industry today is no longer here. I'm in the textile business, and I can tell you everything's been sh you know shifted over. I mean, went from New Bedford down to the Carolinas, from the Carolinas over to China, but actually, believe it or not, it's actually coming back into the state. So, can we bring more manufacturing jobs? Because to me, that's that's the key to um, taxes and revenues is getting manufacturing jobs here in the state. 
in the country and why not into New Bedford? So that's what I think we're going to look at if there's any old buildings, which I think a lot of them, the old textile mills have been converted over to apartments and different things, but is there places there we could bring industry into? Um, and again, again, to go back to the whole golf course thing, I think it should be looked at, but again, making sure it's the right thing for the, for the city. Okay, Maria, um, same question. Uh, do you support the proposal to develop part of the golf course as an industrial park and has the process been public enough uh, and what about large-scale development? Where do we do it in New Bedford? Well, at, at this time, I don't support the mayor's proposal. It's something I definitely want to look at um, more into. I think one of the biggest issues for the business park to be built there is traffic congestion. As you know, if you've ever driven through Hathaway Road now, um, there's a lot of uh, traffic uh, around there. Um, so we really need to take that into consideration when we're thinking about building a business park where the golf course is right now. I also have a problem with, you know, this is the only public golf course that we have in New Bedford, and there's a lot of um, young adult programs going on there, especially during the summer. And a few people have told me who are teachers there that they would hate to see those programs uh, go away. So I think there are other areas in the city. I mean, our industrial park, I know that there's um, an area around there that we could probably uh, try to expand into that area. Um, you know, there's always different ways to try to bring industry into New Bedford. And again, it's what I've said from the beginning. We, people forget or don't realize what a, a jewel of a city we have here in New Bedford, where we're located. You know, we're an hour south of Boston. We're a half hour away from Providence. We're the gateway into the Cape. So our ability to try to bring industry, manufacturing, textile, um, you know, uh, uh, IT uh, industry into the area is something that we really need um, to work on and focus on. Um, downtown, yes, there's some stuff going on down there, new restaurants, new industry, hotels, but downtown is not the only section in New Bedford. Um, you know, a Cushionet Avenue, you go from Cogsall Street all the way up to uh, Phillips Road, there's business after business after business, and these are people who are looking to see what, how we as a city can help them uh, expand their businesses deal with the high uh, property taxes that they have to uh, pay. And if they don't pay the taxes, it's through their rent. Um, I want to be able to work on maybe putting up banners, maybe a weekend where we can shut down a Cushnet Avenue certain sections and have people walk and, you know, go from uh, business to business, go into the restaurant. You know, Day of Portugal, something like they do, uh, a, fe a street festival, Let's see if we can expand that into uh, the other businesses along um, a Cushnet Avenue. So uh, at this time, like I said, I'm, I'm not crazy about the mayor's proposal. I know that a lot of people in, the, in Ward 3 in that area are very worried, especially about traffic congestion. And I think that's something that we really need to look at. And also, like I, uh, I said before, I don't want to lose a public golf course that ha means a lot to many people in the city that 
don't have thousands of dollars to pay for a membership at a golf course, and children would be affected by that. And you know, not only do we need to keep programs like that, one of the things I'd like to see, especially in <coughs> Ward 2, is a community center for young adults and their families, children, young adults, and families. And that's something that we need to expand more in our city, get these children off the street and into a program where there's more tutoring, there's, um, you know, uh, uh, teaching English and, and different languages, music and art, I think we need to expand that more throughout the city rather than opening up a business park at the golf course. I think there are other avenues and other areas that we can look at. Uh, Dan, same question. Uh, right. So um, before before the, the, like the announcement, we had small meetings, and uh, my stance was, well, what did the people that live there, what, what did they want? Uh, so I would like to for them to really have, have the voice in what is put into their community. But again, for me, the frustration is it's always like bringing big business in here because then they'll give jobs to little people and the focus isn't on, small business to me is the key. Um, when I was a kid growing up, when uh, Purchase Street was closed off, when you had uh, the, um, what, what was the store there? What was the store? And you know, you know what drove downtown then? Stella Pifko's Dance Studio, which I went to. And every Saturday, every, and, and weekdays at night, you saw moms going and bringing their little girls there, bun heads, because you always wear hair in a bun. And that she drove that industry because when the moms, when the girl, some girls' moms sat there for the lessons, but others would go and they would have coffee and they would go to the restaurant and they would go to Star Store. And that woman doesn't get the credit for keeping downtown alive for generations and generations. So um, to me, small business is the key. So what, because small businesses hire uh, people locally. They're better bosses. So for me, uh, it's what are we doing to, to stimulate small business and not just downtown. And um, you know, everyone, uh, money goes downtown. And when I have conversations with the mayor, I equate it to if you go to the gym and all you do is work out your legs, you're gonna have very strong legs, a flabby stomach, weak arms, no core strength. So the money needs to go a little bit everywhere. And uh, Steve Martins and I talk all the time. There are times um, in council when, you know, uh, I, I'll vote against things because it's, it's the focus isn't a little bit everywhere. And uh, the, the idea that you need a strong downtown to a, a serious city. Uh, so New Bedford's 13 by 3 miles. We have 100,000 people. The city of Manhattan, I mean, the, Manhattan is 13 by 11 miles. They have 8 million people. They don't have a downtown in Manhattan. You know, when you when you go to Los Angeles, there are pockets. People go to Los Feliz. They go to Santa Monica. There's, there is a downtown, but for years, nobody went there. So I don't think we need that, that model of a... I think that's an antiquated model. I think there need to be places where everybody has success, and it's through small business. And um, so, so and, and again, it's about that working poor that was pushed down under Ronald Reagan, helping them to, to move up. I, I think that's, I, I have a less, I mean, I don't want to say less ambitious because I, I worked very hard uh, with Dr. Yang going to meetings and, and really helping her with the hotel as much as I can. I mean, I'm not, you know, but, but I think small business is where it's at because growing up, I saw the power of it. Okay, and last down, uh, Melissa, uh, do you support uh, the
the main proposal to develop part of the municipal golf course as an industrial park that has the process been public enough? And if not, what are your ideas for large scale economic development? Um, so the way I've read it in the paper and in talking with people um, at the current time, I do not support it. We already have a lack of green space in New Bedford. Looking at the map as going through like this whole um, election process, we are just home after home after home after home. There's not much green space already within the city, and so it would make me sad <laughs> to see one of the only green spaces that we have go away. Um, for possibly big business. There's no guarantee of who's going in there. There's no, you know, and then just the infrastructure, like um, Brad alluded to before, you know, like what is that gonna take to kind of get all of that up and going? There are schools in there are youth that are using that space. Um, these are inner city youth that are using that space that, like Maria um, said before, they don't have thousands of dollars to join the local country club. Um, you know, so to take that away from them for maybe a business, I don't, I, I just, I can't buy into that. Um, you know, maybe if we're looking at more, I mean, there are, if you drive throughout the city, there are areas where there are abandoned buildings or blocks that have come down or buildings that were once there that are no longer there. Let's explore utilizing some of that space. Um, a lot of the uproar has been the lack of transparency. You know, people have said that this is behind closed doors kind of politics. And we need to be more transparent because this is going to affect, you know, the people in that area specifically, and then the, the city entirely. Um, you know, I do agree with Dana with working with small business owners. That that really is when you work with someone one on one, you definitely develop more of a relationship than working for big corporation. The people up at the top don't know who you are. You're just another person on the line. You're very easily replaceable. But when you're working with small business owners. They're invested in you. They're, you know, they're at your family events. They're at, you know, different things like that. So I definitely am more for the small business owners and finding somewhere we can offer them relief as well. Okay. Last question uh, is uh, Andy Tomalotis, who did the uh, our big opioid project. Uh, obviously, opioids have been a big issue in the city. We'll start with Maria on this one. What are your ideas for assisting city residents who are addicted to opioids? What are your ideas for assessing the police in DMS for dealing with the opioid crisis? Well, um, I've always believed or that to solve the opioid crisis, it has to begin at the doctor's office. I think um, doctors e too easily write a script for uh, painkillers to a lot of their uh, patients. We need to train healthcare providers also along with the doctors um, uh, how to treat pain without giving a script. Um, we really have to educate people about how dangerous it is and how addictive uh, opioids are. There are many great uh, treatment places here in New Bedford, you know, High Point and Seven Hills and others like that. Um, I just don't think the addiction programs are long enough. You know, three to six months uh, is not long enough for someone who's been an addict for years. I would like to see programs that basically follow the um, addict for years. Uh, we have the tendency in these programs, three to six months, they're out, they go back into the community, 
and unfortunately they're back with their friends or in, you know, in the neighborhood doing the exact same thing that they did before. So it's a huge crisis in this country, not just in New Bedford. So we, I think we need to really take a good look at what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. And one of the things that we're doing wrong is our education of how addictive uh, opioids are. I think doctors need to do a better job in um, providing information when they're writing that script to a 17-year-old or an 18-year-old or a 30-year-old. Um, I'll just ask this because uh, people, many people have offered this longer treatment um, issue. Would you be willing to, to pay higher insurance premiums to get that longer treatment because that's what the insurance companies will? Well, the insurance companies always want to charge you and they always use the excuse of, you know, we're giving you more. Yeah. Um, you know, we can't give you the same kind of treatment, uh, same kind of coverage because you're getting more treatment. That's, if I may say, it's bullshit, okay? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think we need to stop that insurance companies again. Uh, I don't want to just look at one uh, group and blame them. Um, just like I don't want to just blame every doctor. Uh, I'm not going to blame every insurance company, but um, this is about making money. That's the reality. For many of these uh, insurance companies, it's about how much money they can make. It's a service that they provide and it's a service that we need. But, you know, uh, do things really change from one year to the other? Do, do our premiums really need to go up 50, 60%? No. It's a money maker. It's just like uh, a weight loss program. There's a reason why Jenny Craig and Weight Watchers and programs like that are, have been around for years. And people constantly go back and lose the weight. Two years later, a year later, they're back to where they were. And I look at, you know, of course, it, it's two different issues, but it's the same kind of addiction. Um, our programs with drugs do not work. And we have to, we, it's like a, a cut that we have. We put a Band-Aid over it, and then it, get, it heals, and then we cut ourselves again. We need to do a better job in providing the services to us and their families. Three months or six months is just not enough time for a person to come out clean. You know, there are programs where that addict comes out of jail, right? They've been arrested. They've been in jail for a couple of days, a couple of weeks, a couple of months. Especially those addicts that have been there for months. They no longer have a drug in their system. They go into some of these programs. And what's the first thing that a doctor does? He gives them a script for methadone. So you put that addict back on an addictive drug. It's the circle jerk that we have when we're, when we're dealing with uh, the drug crisis in this country. I want, again, education, education, education. Doctors need to do better in write, in, before they write a script. An 18-year-old who gets hurt playing soccer or playing baseball or football, and right away a doctor writes a script for oxycodone. They need to educate the parents of that child. This is what can happen if your child takes this medication. This is what can happen if you take this medication. So it, it's a combination of education and also making the programs fit the patient that is going into that program. I don't want to lose any more children. I don't want to lose any more young adults. We're losing too many of them from all different backgrounds, all different colors, all different races and sexes. 
So, um, yeah, uh, I, I really think that the programs need to be a little bit longer. Um, I think doctors need to be educated and healthcare providers need to be educated about the effects of the drugs that they're prescribing. I think they need to really step back before they write that script for that person. Same question, Dana. What are your ideas for assisting city residents who are addicted to opioids? What are your ideas for assisting the police and EMS? So, um, it's, it's, it's a crisis, but we've had addiction crisis before, before it was heroin, and it affected uh, a small, pop, uh, well, probably just as vast, but a different population. It was poor people. So there was less empathy. And uh, we had the war on drugs. My cousin started, Gerald started treatment on demand. And that wasn't very well received by, by uh, the establishment. So, you know, now we have a disease that is more spread out in the people it affects. And so now we have more empathy, and the question is, what do we do? Which I appreciate. I wish we had that that years ago. Uh, we still have to address the men and women that are victims of the war on drugs, um, that are still in jail and, and out of jail and unable to get jobs. So what do we do? Um, we need more beds, obviously, but that's more money. And as you said, the profiteers are going to figure out a way to make money off of, off of people's pain. So uh, Senator Warren a while ago, Elizabeth Warren, had, had a proposal that uh, pharmaceutical companies in Massachusetts have to donate 3% of their profits and that that money would go to um, research. And I've reached out a few times uh, because I don't think they've pushed it further to say, instead of 3% going to research, can we have 1.5% go to research and 1.5% go to beds? Had we been doing that since 2013, we would have had $6 billion. But that's a lot of, I mean, in research, I, I agree. But $3 billion towards beds, that's what we need. So um, so my, uh, my, my little two cents, and I've spoken to the chief about this, and he said, anytime you know, there's a hearing and you need me to testify, I will be there, is that you know, we hold accountable the pharmaceutical companies, many of which lie about the level of addiction that, with, that their medicine creates in people. Let's hold them accountable and take 3%, which is, again, a small percentage of their, of their profits, and let's make them do the right thing with it. Um, so that, that would be something that I would, would hope that not only council in New Bedford, but council in other cities, and there would be many cities, across our state, would uh, would come together to implement and shame on any pharmaceutical company, you know, for go for and you know what they're going to do? They're going to hire lobbyists. So that's why we need to keep pressure on our congressmen, our senators, and our reps to say don't don't take that money. Uh, so that that I think that would be a help. And having spoken to uh, the chief, he he agrees. Same question, Melissa. Your ideas for assisting city residents who are addicted to opioids and for helping the police and EMS deal with the crisis. Okay. Um, so I have been a crisis clinician um, through the Department of Mental Health, which got privatized. Um, but when I was doing crisis, I cannot tell you the number of people that came into local emergency rooms who were asking for help from opioid addiction, heroin addiction, um, and. These are people who are coming to the pro, you know, coming looking for help. And once again, you try to call around for a bed. There's only a number of facilities that actually deal with dual diagnosis, which is dealing with substance abuse as well as mental health. Um, and actually, within the last year, one of those 
of the smoothies has closed, so I think we're down to only like three, and that's one in Fall River, one in Worcester, and there's one more out there. But, um, you know, so there's a very small, limited number of beds. And Maria, I think you're being very kind when you say three to six month programs. <laughs> We're looking more like three to five days, really, of what a lot of these uh, detox programs are looking at. And then once they go from there, they might be held for a couple of days. And, you know, it's that frustration of where do I go to next? So, you know, a lot of times we saw the same people kind of coming in. Um, because they couldn't get the help that they needed when they needed it, when they wanted it. One of the programs that I have come in contact with is through Brockton. They started last February. It's called the Champion Program. And what it does is any person who is seeking help for addiction is able to go into the local police station, say, I need help. And they have partnered up with um, a local recovery program. And they have a, a volunteer coach who comes along picks up that person, brings them to a secure place to be held while a facility, a detox facility is being searched for. And then they partner with the ambulance company who will then come and pick up that person and transport them to the um, to whatever facility is available at that time. So I would like to see New Bedford. I, I reached out to the police department through our CCIT to kind of let that know like, hey, this is a program that's going on. It's about a year into it. Year and a half, um, and it's been doing well. Like the fact that people can, it's a quick way to go. It, it um, eliminates the congestion from the hospitals as well. Um, and the police have this whole collaboration, and it works nicely where they're, you know, they're able to have those contacts already available. Um, so I, that helps the police, that helps the EMS, that helps the residents to kind of know where they can go to seek the help right away that they need it. Um, and I think education is important. You know, from the time that our kids are little, talking to them about drugs, you know, being an advocate for your for your child or for yourself even, you know, when you go to the doctor's office and you think that they're prescribing what's best for you in your best interest and realizing that there is a whole money marketing behind all of that. Um, so making sure that we are all educated on all of that and that the doctors are educated and passing along that information and holding them accountable for that. And that's how we, you know, it's about community. We all coming together to share our knowledge and to help each other out. And Brad, your ideas for using residents who are addicted to opioids and for helping police and EMS with the crisis. Right. I mean, obviously the front line of the police, the EMS, and the fire. I was talking to a, fire, a fireman the other day, and they're going out on these runs too. So obviously the training for all three of those groups or any group that's going out there, uh, and also the funding. Uh, I think they said at one time on knock-in, they might have had four or five units now it's probably a couple hundred on hand at any given time. So number one would be obviously keep them funded, keep them educated. Um, also to the city itself, I mean, I was always thinking, well, if you revive somebody on Narcan, they come out, they go right back to the streets. Well, then I read where you know, the city is to actually have an outreach type of program where they go after the person who had overdosed and go to talk to them and try to get them into some kind of help. So I think that's very important. Um, actually walking the streets, campaigning. Just this weekend, I, was, I ran into this gentleman, he was 23 years old, he had an issue with opioids. And what it was, was he said he had a, a, a big family base to help him through it. So obviously, that's the type of important thing as well. So it would, it would help when they go in for treatment. And I agree too, uh, 30 days isn't enough, or the five days, or the 60 days. I had a family acquaintance who had an issue with drugs, and this goes back 20 years ago. Uh, and they gave him the option, 18 years in the House of Correction, 18 months in the House of Correction, or two years at a place called Marathon House in Springfield, Mass. 
I don't think that's there anymore. I think it was a state, a state uh, a place for rehab. And that's what works. I think the state, uh, I can't say New Bedford should do this, but I think the state, instead of throwing money at different things, maybe look at, again, we don't have enough beds, opening up these places where you can go. Because again, it is a long term. And what, what's, what helped him was he never moved back. Because you come back, you're back with the same crowd, you can fall back into that again. Um, one of the other things I think the state's doing is uh, right now an ambulance, I think I read in the Standard Times where they use it was a liquid uh, Tylenol intravenous instead of going in with the opioids while you're in an ambulance. They've allowed that. So that way you're not getting that into your system and hopefully going forward. Um, the, the other thing is I agree to educating, say, the doctors on opioids when they prescribe them. Uh, this young man I talked to, that's how he, he happened to him. He got an injury in school. They gave him the uh, Percodans or whatever it was, and then it continued on. Um, I think they need to educate also the person taking the, the, the medicines, but also the parents or the guidance or whomever. So you know what to look for. You know it doesn't go on too, too long. Um, my daughter just last year had a, wisdom, a couple of wisdom teeth taken out, and they gave her Percodan. She was scared to death to take it. We gave her half of one, and that was it. She did. So she's educated through the school system, and I think that's important too to the schools when they're young to teach them about this. And that way, like my daughter, she goes, no, I don't want it because I don't want to be addicted. So, I mean, there's a lot we can do um, here in the city, in, in the state, and then also the doctors and us personally on uh, how to do that. So. That was a lot of questions. Uh, thank you all for your great answers and patience and, and for participating today. Thank you, thank you very much.